that I internally shudder at the word evangelism. Um, if you stick a tela in front of it, in fact, I think of it as a curse word, um, I reflectively question the necessity of taking a very useful word, witness, and turning it into a theologically loaded complex verb. It's, there's not really any part of this post-salvation, Jesus-changed, born-again life that holds less instinctual appeal for me than evangelism. Um, and that's a list that includes martyrdom, so if hopefully that'll give you an idea where I'm coming from on this subject. Um, I bring that up for the purposes of just being honest, full disclosure, um, but also to highlight how out of character it was for me, uh, how foreign, how alien, when a couple years ago, I think April of 2013, uh, I sent to one of my brothers who wasn't a Christian uh, an unsolicited way too long Facebook message um, about how Christ had changed my life. Um, it was a message that was very out of character for me, very unexpected for him, um, but it wasn't the result of a sudden, you know, divine inspiration. It wasn't, you know, oh, bolt of lightning, this is something I have to do. It was a slow grind of my will by God's patient persistence. Uh, the Spirit bore me down with tenacity, um, usually reserved for nags. <laughs> and I had a lot of objections throughout that process, a lot of reasons. And if we're being honest, they were excuses why I should get to remain silent, why I shouldn't have to say anything. Um, but God stuck with me and eventually I broke on that subject. It wasn't a clean break, um, but I sat and in one sitting wrote out that whole testimony um, in a dark room lit only by monitor light, uh, not going back to spell check because I was pretty sure that if I did, I would just lose my nerve and scrap the whole thing. Some of us are called to evangelize. It seems to come easy to them. God bless those people. <laughs> For the rest of us, we have reasons, objections, excuses. The Great Commission is amazing on many levels because, well, not the least of which is because it's just so direct and clear. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's not vague. Uh, it's incredibly useful in that regard. We don't have a lot of you know, doctrinal differences on this subject. We don't have three or four different Christian denominations all on different sides of that verse. It is what it is. Um, but the commission is a culmination it's the final word on that subject. It's the end. It doesn't explain why we go out and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't have to. Um, that's something that was already amply demonstrated a hundred different ways throughout Jesus' earthly ministry and through the law and prophets that testified to his coming. Um, and I think, for me at least, and maybe this is true for some of you, I don't know, but I know that I can trace some of my unease with the process of evangelism to having started and stopped at the Great Commission, of having gone right to the end, go therefore make disciples of all nations, and never taking it anywhere else. Uh, go forth and make disciples because God said so. Um, and on a purely intellectual level, that's enough. I mean, because the author of existence said so, 
is a very, very good reason to do anything, really. <laughs> um, but it doesn't have the same emotional weight or lasting endurance if we don't have somewhere inside us the why on that subject. Um, why is this important? Are there answers to my very good reasons why I shouldn't have to say anything? Are there any refutations to my objections? And there are. There are tons of them, actually. <laughs> um, today I want to read from the book of Second Kings in chapter 7. It's not a book that I, personally at least, would traditionally ascribe to be evangelistic. That's part of how it was able to successfully sneak up on me, actually. Um, it's not an imperative. It's not a series of thou shalts or thou shalt not. It's a narrative. It's a story. It's a retelling of Israel's history. It begins, at least, appearing to be the story of how Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, took his army and marched with it and laid siege to the Israel northern kingdom, its capital city of Samaria. Now, in classical warfare, the concept and principles of the siege tactic are pretty straightforward. Uh, when you've got a fortified city, lots of guys on the walls, if you want to just go there and take it, you've got to march all of your men right up to those fortified walls and then try somehow to get through that totally blocked off gate in the killing ground directly in front of it. You've got to brave all the arrows and stones of the defenders, and generally, um, it's bloody and costly work. The siege does it differently. You just line up, you surround the city, and you wait. You wait while inside the city, all the stockpiled food reserves begin to run out. You wait until the wells dry up. You wait until everybody's resolve starts to wane. And then eventually, nobody has the strength to stand on those walls or hold those gates. And then you end it on your terms and on your timing. And in Kings, we read that it was a tactic that seemed to have been working as intended. Uh, cut off from all supplies and support, the people in Samaria were starving to death. Uh, we read that the most unappetizing food items were selling for ridiculous prices and desperation was driving people to unthinkable acts. And in the midst of all this, the prophet Elisha, who's in the city at the time, speaks. He says, hear the word of the Lord and prophesies that God will save them. And when he does so, he's met with scorn and derision. Now, as I look at the setup of this entire story, I, I see great events. I see history-making characters. I see these powerful thematic elements. You know, you've got war and death, kings and armies, faith and fear. We've got Elisha, the prophet, who has a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Um, Elisha, who was actually at the heart of the last miracle that saved Samaria when the Aramites attacked, or the Arameans, I should say. Um, and the, the takeaway is that I get the sense that we have great forces moving in the world, uh, dwarfing forces that are beyond our direct experience and certainly beyond our ability to resolve. And I highlight that because that really brings me to the first in the series of excuses I made to God <laughs> during that long grinding out process when I didn't want to write to my brother. Um, I affectionately call that excuse the I'm not Billy Graham excuse. <laughs> um, we get the sense that great events require great people. And we often get the sense, the, the painful sense, 
that we are not great. That's something that I think, especially when we ponder these heavy matters, these costly matters, we become painfully aware that we are not great. Uh, it's somebody else's job. It's the job of somebody who has something special to give, and that clearly is not me. Where could we, who presumably aren't kings or prophets, fit into something so significant? So this whole story that I've been you know, giving you the background on, it starts in chapter 6. It, it goes into the first few verses of chapter 7. But I want to start in verse 3 of chapter 7, because that's when the focus, the point of view changes in this story. We're not inside the city anymore. We don't have the overhead sort of third-person view. It, it zooms in, and how this story unfolds and ultimately resolves begins in a relatively unexpected place. So I want to read verses 3 and 4. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Four lepers unnamed sitting outside the city gates in a time of war, which incidentally is not prime real estate. Um, the context is, is these are lepers, and by the standards of the Mosaic law, they're unclean. They're excluded from the camp of their fellow Israelites. Um, just from a literary standpoint, this is one of the best examples I've ever seen recorded of the being between a rock and a hard place situation. Uh, you've got a locked gate in front of you, and an army of people who marched all the way from Aram on the other side, waiting to kill you. Um, we see the desperation of their situation in those couple of verses. These are men faced with the certainty of death. And they have nothing to lose and there's nowhere else to go. These men aren't the solution to this problem. You know, we, we look at the story of this siege, this issue... And in these verses, we get the sense these guys are not the answer we're looking for as far as dealing with this issue. Um, they're just more people in need of rescue. People, in fact, worse off than absolutely everyone else mentioned up to this point. And I want to highlight that because of the issue I noted earlier with that evangelistic philosophy I at least held that started and stopped at the Great Commission. The story doesn't begin with a bunch of people who have no problems stopping and saying to themselves one day, gosh, I guess I should help those miserable people over there. Um, it's a story that begins with people who are, in fact, equally doomed. So, having nothing to lose, these men take a risk. A crisis can sometimes lead to a certain level of clarity. Not always. It makes some of us even less smart. <laughs> but every now and then, you get that crystallizing moment where dire events cause you to cut through all of the doubt and inadequacy and worry and you think clearly. These men say to themselves, if we stay here, we are dead. If we go into the city, we are dead. If we go to the Arameans, we are most likely probably dead. Admittedly, none of these things are great options. So uh, what do they do? We pick up in verse 5 and we'll go through to 8. 
So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. Um, but when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made, an, had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses and the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt come against us. So they fled away into the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when the lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. A miracle. God had saved his people, as he said he would, had in fact saved these four lepers. God's provision was good. These people had gone from being poor, starving, and, and not, you know, two-color TVs, plumbing, electricity, poor, Old Testament poor, <laughs> um, ate the shoes last week poor. Um, they went from being poor, starving, and having almost certainly dead as the best of all possible options, to feasting, to having money stashed away, and to having hope. God had provided, and the provision was good. And that sort of brings me to the second excuse that had to be ground down out of me before I could send off that message. And, and that, that's more of a question. If we are the lepers, if this story is about us, how many of us are okay stopping the story here? And they were fed rich and happy the end. Um, the narrative arc for the lepers is complete. They've been saved. We can close the Bibles. We can go home. Life is good. Um, what I detest about evangelism is that it insists on taking the story beyond that point. Uh, it doesn't let it end there, no matter how easy that would make our lives. It interrupts our comfort. I can make a top 10,000 list of things I'd like to be doing. Evangelism does not make that list. I'm just going to read chat, verse 9 now. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. Can you conceive of the gravity of that moment? As you eat with your friends, as you laugh, as you admire the fine things that are now yours, slowly realizing that just over the hill your countrymen do not know they've been delivered. That there's food enough for everyone around you. And behind the wall, people are literally murdering their children and eating them. Faced with the certainty of death, God saves, and this knowledge must be shared. And they said to one another, we are not doing right. The leper's story concludes. We'll do 10 through 12. So they came and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied in the tents as they were. 
And the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. The lepers aren't mentioned again. The the recorded part of their story ends there. Uh, They've delivered their message and nobody believes it. Um, Third excuse. No one will believe me. It won't matter. Nothing will change. Uh, that, that night, two years ago, I sent my brother the message and then I prayed. And then I wept in a most undignified and unmanly fashion. <laughs> um, I told you it wasn't a clean break. Now, in the movie version of this personal story of mine, uh, things end with an altar call set to a great soundtrack or alternatively a tearful recitation of the sinner's prayer set to a still good but more low-key soundtrack. Um, it did not. Uh, it ended with a reply from my brother a couple days later that was loving, respectful, and polite, thanking me for the intentions of my heart. There was no soundtrack. It ended in silence. It ended behind those walls. I have nothing to give. It interrupts my comfort, and it won't change anything. But, but we have received a great commission. Whatever our doubts, whatever our pains, whatever the outcome, we must not, cannot, shall not be silent. Faced with the certainty of death, God saves, and this knowledge must be shared. I asked for a why to the great commission, and I found it on those walls at Samaria. My first point is this. As it was for those lepers, it is for us. There's nowhere else to go. And that remains true for those who remain lost. In the Gospel of John, as many others are deserting him, Jesus asked the twelve, do you wish to leave also? And, and Peter, and, and I, I give Peter some attitude when I say this, but he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? <laughs> you have the words of eternal life. We absolutely take a risk following Jesus. Um, the Bible is not vague on that subject at all. Um, but faced with the options of death, death, and almost probably certain death, crisis clarity should kick in for us. There's nowhere else to go. In Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's nowhere else to go. Now, furthermore, we who are Christians, you know, um, we've witnessed the fulfillment of this word already. Uh, God has saved us. We're at this feast. We've inherited this treasure. And this is my second point, and I, and I want to labor it for a moment because I think it's significant. It's good. Not supermarket person asks you how you're feeling good, not great, good. But God looked on the creation and good. The way Good Friday is good. His provision is good. Jesus says he is the living water that wells up into eternal life. 
So we drink. We drink and we never thirst again. That's not only right, it's necessary. But the question becomes, do we stop there? Do we end enjoying that feast? Will the story stop at that point? My brothers and sisters, then as now, this is a day of good news, and far too often we remain silent. The cost of our silence is horror and death. We who have feasted, who have been satisfied by God, we who have inherited the treasure of his kingdom, we who know something amazing, something life-saving, all around us our countrymen still starve, still live under the weight of that siege. People we love are dying behind a wall they think is protecting them. Have you ever read anywhere in the New Testament where you get the sense that things can afford to wait? There's no urgency. I have not found that verse. I looked for it. (laughs) Because I desperately wanted to find it. Um, My third point. It's simple. I think I've hammered it enough. But we who know must share. It's not a vague one. I want to read in Matthew chapter 9, actually, 35 through 38. Because I think it's something that Jesus amply demonstrates in his own particular way. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction for them. Because they were, I'm sorry, (laughs) and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We cannot allow self-doubt to hinder us in the pursuit of something that was never about our own strength to begin with. We must bear any discomfort or any imposition and we cannot be discouraged by our fears of the outcome. And this is all for the very simple reason that if we truly understand the why behind it, the commission we have received is too great for any of these excuses to even register. In the light of the cost of our silence, what do these things matter? I've been a Christian my whole life, and I never truly testified until that day two years ago. Um, And it was to the person I would have last chosen. It was painful, and it ended the way it did. Um, And since that day, five or so times, maybe four, I've sufficiently mastered myself to stifle my natural inherent and persistent cowardice and, um, and speak to the things I know. And those times it ended the same way it did with my brother with one single exception, and I thank God daily for letting me see that. There's nowhere else to go. He has the words of life and there is no other name. His grace is good because he is the living water. And those of us who know this must share it. 
Chris, our, our brother from far away, walked through his shoes to share this news, I ask that we at least scuff ours. Thank you.